From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG, and I'm Eric Clayton. If you're a long-time listener of this podcast, and certainly if you're a graduate of Jesuit education, then you likely know a thing or two about the story of St. Ignatius of Loyola. You know about his courtly life, the, the cannonball, the conversion, the books he read while bedridden, his pilgrimage, and the cave, and the founding of the Society of Jesus. You probably can rattle plot points off just like that. But have you ever taken time to really immerse yourself in the story? To imagine what Ignatius said to his fellow soldiers. To picture the scene of the early companions gathered before the Pope. In short, have you painted in the sketch of Ignatius's life so that the colors leap from the page? Today's guest, Tyler Button, certainly has, in more ways than one. A former special education teacher, Tyler is now the founder of Tapestry Comics, a publisher that focuses on making historical narratives exciting and accessible to readers of all ages, but especially to high school students. His past projects have featured William the Conqueror and Joan of Arc. But in turning to the life and legacy of Ignatius of Loyola, and imagining himself in the scenes he was portraying, Tyler discovered the practical power of Ignatian spirituality. In today's conversation, we unpack what it means to tell the story of Ignatius across a new medium, and why it matters for the Ignatian family today. If you're interested in learning more about Tyler's work or getting a copy of his book, The Greater Glory, The Story of Ignatius of Loyola, you can contact him at tapestrycomics.com contact. I'll also include a link in the show notes. And now, here's Tyler. Tyler Button, welcome to AMDG. We're glad you're with us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Um, so I, you know, you've uh, you're at the helm of this this really cool comics shop. Uh, you're, you're you're making really cool graphic novels. Um, so I, I'm excited to talk to you about the process of of, of all of that. But um, but I, I'm curious. You know, I, I know you started uh, Tapestry Comics, right, which is the name of, of your shop um, after a long career teaching special education. So I'm wondering if you can. Talk to us a little bit about how um, kind of one thing became the other and how maybe your your work um, in comics is informed by your your background in special ed. Yeah, sure. Uh, that was a whole journey. I wouldn't say that I worked a long time in special ed. I don't think I'm old enough to have worked a long time in special ed. I did about 10 years stint. Um, 10 years is a good amount of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, with the life cycle of teachers being about five years. Yeah, I guess that's probably true. Uh, but uh, yeah, so uh, we... When uh, my wife and I had our first child, I left. I, I loved teaching. Um, I worked mo uh, primarily with uh, emotionally disabled kids. I don't know what the acronym they use is now, but it was ED at the time. So um, I did high school and junior high. And so when we had our first kid, uh, my paycheck essentially would be paying for childcare for my kids. So it just right. made sense for me to stay home. And, and I left. Uh, but... I wanted to keep on telling my favorite history stories in a way that uh, kids would be interested in them. During over the course of my teaching career, the the movie Three Hundred came out, uh, and with that, uh, I mean, before that, I had been spending years teaching about the the Persian Wars and the Greeks and all of that stuff, and you know, it was very hit or miss periodically. But as soon as Three Hundred came out, everybody all of a sudden re could remember Leonidas and Xerxes and all of that stuff, uh, and so. 
dealing with special education kids, you kind of find that information is retainable. Like a lot of stuff is, is really, it depends on how you present it, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so what I wanted to do, my mission was to teach by creating history materials that kids would want to pick up and were easy to, you know, they, they were accessible to, to more people. And the thing, the great, the great thing about graphic novels is that they reach, they're accessible to people with multiple intelligences. And by intelligences, I'm talking about, you know, whether you're a visual learner, you're, uh, you know, you learn by reading, you do all this stuff. And it doesn't matter what your reading level is. You can get context, uh, you know, if you're a reluctant reader. And I, 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 this is the long story of this, but essentially like it's my, my, my special ed teaching landed on graphic novels as the most effective way to get the interest and accessibility of, of, of fantastic stories that these kids are not picking up and, and reading normally. And that, that's really the, what the, my goal was. Yeah. Yeah, no, I love that. And I, I like that. Idea. I mean, cause again, as you said, that graphic novel is, is immersive in, in a variety of ways. And I think 300 is such a good example of a film because it had kind of a, a unique, um, uh, like, like art to it, right? Like, like it was, it was. There was a certain degree of, of epicness to way the way it was shot, and um, and I think that comes through um, certainly in this uh, in this graphic novel, uh, Greater Glory, and historical biography of Saint Ignatius of Loyola. But before we, we get into our hero, there, I do. I want to. I'm going to spend some more time talking just about tapestry comics and and right. what um like what how do, how does a person go about starting um a, a you know kind of a comic publisher here and and what Again, what's that mission? What what makes it unique? So I really tripped over it. I wasn't uh, a, a big avid comic reader or or you know connoisseur or in that in that world. Um, I just knew that that was the avenue that I wanted to approach. And so uh, my first book was I did. Uh, it's called Bayou. It's I took the Bayou Tapestry, the Norman Invasion of England, William the Conqueror, ten sixty six, all that stuff. Uh, which is essentially it's based on a tapestry. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's three hundred feet long. Um, You've probably seen the imagery all over the place. It's very common, um, but it's a 300-foot-long tapestry that's essentially a medieval graphic novel that tells the story of William the Conqueror conquer- conquering England. Cool. Um, and so I updated that into a modern graphic novel. Uh, it's a really important story, but it doesn't get much coverage in history classes, and it's something that is as riveting as game of thrones but it happened in real life and so for me that just made sense to make a book um that kids would pick up and read and get something from now you mentioned the 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 stylistic storytelling of 300 and don't get me wrong like i love 300 the movie i love the comic books they're all they're all great but for me i think that that is is the focus of what tapestry is is that i wanted to tell the stories but i wanted to make them more grounded in real life like i wanted Mm. to i think that there's a role for fantasy and history and doing all that stuff like i think things like abraham lincoln vampire hunter are like fun and fantastic and all that uh but what i wanted to do is i wanted to make tapestry a place that is firmly in between you know comic books and leather bound volumes of historical tomes. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? So like uh, a stepping stone, uh, a little bit more serious, a little bit on, you know, actually what happened, real history. Um, 
and that's that was what I was trying to accomplish. Yeah, and what kind of feedback have you gotten from students? You know, like you're you say like a key audience is is students of of you know varying degrees of interest in in history. Are are they like pumped? Are they excited? Are they confused that all of a sudden history is is visual in this in this kind of um, innovative way? What are you hearing? Yeah, so I I think what it is is that I it's it's a this is going to sound funny in this in this uh, context, but it's a, really a conversion tool. Mm. Um, I, I, some schools have adopted it, um, using them in, in classrooms um, for for their their lessons. But for the most part, it's parents buying books for their kids, um, being like, you know, get this. This is you know, you'll really like this. And then kids are like, oh, I didn't know I liked history. And then they'll you know <laughs> die. It gets the it gets them on board, which is the whole intent, right? So, I mean, there are some kids who already know that I like history. This looks interesting. I'm going to get this, um, but for the most part, it's it's parents buying these, saying like, "Hey, you know, read this. This looks like something that you would enjoy." And it's like, "Oh my gosh, I do enjoy that," and it kickstarts that that avenue for them. Yeah. How do you um how do you like land on the projects or or the the particular moments in history that you want to relay via graphic novel? So, uh, so far, the, the two books that I have out already are Bayou, uh, which is the Bayou Tapestry, and then I did Joan of Arc. Yeah. Um, and really, they were the two stories that were my favorite to tell. Um, I think that here in the States, um, William the Conqueror is a, very, a much lesser known idea, but it's incredibly important. I wish new pe- more people knew about it. So that was it's one of my favorite stories to tell. And it was a very exciting story to tell through graphic novel. That was just the easiest choice for my, for, for my first one. Joan of Arc, uh, is a story that I absolutely adore and love, but the problem that I was trying to solve is that most people know of Joan of Arc, but couldn't really tell you her story because it's just kind of, it's always told in brief, casual, you know, over. It's like, oh, Joan of Arc, she's burned as a witch, all that stuff. And that's not even true, right? So I wanted to tell her real actual story and get it out there. And again, it's it's dynamic. You can fill comic pages. It's exciting. There's war. There's intrigue. Um, and so I thought it was important to tell her story and get it out there in the way that in that way for your because you're doing the writing right you're are you actually are you doing the illustrating or you're you're collaborating no, i can't draw writing? a lick yeah no <laughs> i can't draw a lick so i i have to hire other people to do that so i guess i'm fascinated by i don't guess that i am factually fascinated by um the kind of imaginative exercises you must go through right to say this is a historical you know moment of of import i can tell it in a good story but then the amount of um, just dialogue and conversation and collaboration that must go into then putting it into the different frames, right? How do, how do you how do you do that as a you know from from beginning to end? Uh, so it's it's exciting and difficult at the same same time because as I'm writing, I can picture everything uh, sometimes exactly the way that I want it in my head and be like, this is what I want, and I'll get art back. And it'll be like, that's not what I had in mind. And you have to learn to kind of take a step back and being mm-hmm. like, you know, it's a completely different person um, doing that. And so you need to be able to relinquish that kind of control. But at the same time, you by having that collaboration, you also get the exciting surprises where it's like, oh, I didn't even think about that. And it comes back even better than you could have imagined it. And so I always approach it as I give the artist room to do like if 
I'll say this is what I'm trying to get to. Um, it's it's like working on a movie, right? I write the script, but I allow them to be almost like the director. Like, you know where I'm trying to take this. Do it in a way that best suits you. Like, you can see the page. I could ask for... It's really funny. In comic creator circles, the arguments that people get in, but like the writer and the artist, where writers will be like, want a giant crowd, and, and artists will be like, you can't do that. You can't fit it in the panel. You only have so much space. You have to have words there. Um and it's it's a dance. It really yeah. is. And it's 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 been absolutely phenomenal and fantastic uh to learn and grow from never doing it before to uh this third book here. Yeah, it makes me I mean I took I took courses on like storyboarding. Um and mm-hmm. it makes me think like, oh like but but that was you know, it's it's different because this, the stakes are a little different and plus when you're when you're filming a you know, a movie, right, things are moving, whereas this is you have to capture so much as you said, in just a certain amount of space, do you find yourself um, ever like cre- uh, correcting the history? Do you ever like look at an image and say like, "Oh, like that would be historically inaccurate," or is the is the level of detail different? So it's that that's also a dance. So uh, and it's kind of a fantastic development in how that worked. Uh, my first book, By You, um, I worked with a gentleman who was pretty on point with with no knowledge of history and, and did th- th- their best stuff. And so when we were finished with that project, I sent it to the museum where the Bayou Tapestry is in Normandy, France, saying, you know, a short little note in French that I learned in middle school and high school, like, hey, this is what I did, thought you might be interested. And six months later, I get a response from the curator of the museum, and it's three pages all in French. And the thing that killed me is the word anachronism in English is the same as French. So I have my little French knowledge, and I just keep on saying the word anachronism in my, like, heart sinks and I'm just like an absolute mess because everything's done. But she uh, was pointing out things like the tents that the soldiers were in were 17th century tents as opposed to 11th century tents. And Mont Saint-Michel didn't look the way that we had depicted it. And Westminster Abbey was its more modern iteration as opposed to what it would have looked like in 1066. And so uh, I think that it's, it's important to get a lot of history correct but i think like visually there are some things that you just have to be willing to let go um and it might be a cop-out but you know when you have westminster abbey or mount saint michelle as they are today they're more identifiable than if you had them and so i don't know yeah no right i um because like you said like you you want to teach it's a teaching tool but also if you know if a, if if people can't figure out what they're looking at, um, you know, in this brief frame, then it's probably, it's not accomplishing the, the goal you have in mind. So yeah, I imagine that's a, that's a tough, uh, a tough needle to thread. Um, well, let's, let's talk about uh, this, this book, the, um, your, your, your latest on St. Ignatius of Loyola. I know you've yeah. uh, been working with a friend of our, our podcast, uh, Father Bart Giger, um, mm-hmm. who is an expert in all things um, uh, Ignatius. Um, but tell me, how did you, like, why, why this story? What drew you to this, this one in particular? So um, I uh, went to Jesuit high school, and so I kind of had that connection a little bit. And I think that when I was exploring what stories I wanted to do next, um, I always, I mean, everybody gets taught the Ignatius and the Cannonball story. And I'm just like, well, you know, there, there, there might be a exciting story in there. And funny enough, uh, I tried to do it and I, I tried reading the autobiography uh, of Ignatius about five years ago, and I couldn't do it. Like I, I, I 
I couldn't do it. I couldn't get through it. It was it was it was so hard for me to read. I got it on audiobook and I tried listening to it and I oh. <laughs> couldn't make it through it. Like it was just I'm just like I, I, I don't know. I, I if I can't get the source material, then I can't write the book. So I put it down and and that's what it is. And you mentioned that um, I was working with Father Bart, and my first introduction to Father Bart was his recent uh, edition of the autobiography. Yeah, yeah. And his footnotes that he did in that made the whole thing so accessible that I was riveted. Like that, just that, just that the context that he provided, the way that he laid it out. I loved it. And there's so much more to his story than I ever learned in Jesuit high school. Uh, and for me, as soon as I did that, my epiphany is like, more people need to know this. More people need to have access to this story. Um, I wish I had access to this story when I was going through Jesuit high school because there's so much to connect to. Um, what were, what were the that, things that kind of really like jumped out at you? You were like, "This, I have to get this across." So I think for for me was the way that, and it could be different now because I haven't been in high school for what, like, almost thirty years now. I, I'm not counting, uh, but I know when I was there, it was very superficial. It was you know, Ignatius went and he you know, cannonball hit him. Um, and don't even get me started on the whole cannonball thing, because I will die on the hill that that is terrible framing of the situation. The, the actual story after the cannonball of his pilgrimage, of just his year in Manresa, and, and what he went through before forming the Jesuits makes, you know, for the greater glory of God, makes so much more sense. Um, it's really easy to connect to Ignatius because before he comes from the same point that I think that a lot of Jesuit students are coming from as far as a place of privilege, kind of middle, upper middle class, higher classes, and that ability to kind of strip all of that away to find kind of what's important in life. Uh, and so when you're talking about Jesuit students, and what are all these seeds that we're trying to plant in them and to create them for men and women for others. I think that there's so much more to relate to an Ignatius, the person and his story that you could use to be like, this is why this is happening here. This is why this institution exists. This is, this is what we're trying to make. Um, and without kind of showing that, I feel like, Schools are missing an opportunity to, ha to to make those fields ready for the planting for those four years. Um, so I, I think that that there are seeds in that story. Be like, I get it. Like it makes more sense. Um, I can connect with these lessons and what they're trying to teach me. Yeah, yeah. No, I think you're absolutely right. And I think um, it's. Funny. I, I agree. The autobiography is like a is like a. It's a weird book to read, right? Because it's you know he he like dictated it. He didn't want to write it. It's super short. It kind of ends in a random spot. It almost feels like. I, I'm interested to hear like how you went about because um, because your your book is definitely longer um, and bigger <laughs> and heavier than the autobiography. Um, and I'm. What, what's the process for? Um, I mean, it's not it's not fiction, right? I guess it. Uh, but you're you're kind of imagining dialogue in in Ignatius's mouth, right? You're imagining dialogue in in other people, other characters, you know. And um, 
which in and of itself is a very kind of Ignatian prayer experience. So, 100%. Um, so, so tell me a little bit about that process and, and, and kind of how you approached it. So, I mean, the, it's easy to make it longer when you have like the autobiography and it talks about him battling like a demon serpent, right? But that's like only two lines in the autobiography where in a comic book, you could actually make that a thing. Right. Like um, the autobiography is really small, but there are other biographies about Ignatius that are gigantic, that are just huge. Um, and there are other works that dissect the autobiography or dissect Ignatius' story. And so what's really great about the graphic novel is it's it's kind of, I like to see it as almost like a pill, right? So you have all of this information from the autobiography, um, from these other biographies, from these uh, contextualizations of the lessons of Ignatius. And I read through all of them and I took all of the notes and I was able to condense all of those down and put bits of them throughout this graphic novel. So you give it to a 14-year-old freshman coming into school and they're able to have access to these ideas and this information, but it's done in a way that they, you know, have the pictures and they have, uh, they, they don't have to read 500 pages to, to kind of understand it. it. It gives it, it's very easy to digest. It's very, uh, and if then if they wanted to step up and learn more about it, all of that is it just like how Father Bart did with the autobiography is just more accessible. As far as as the narratives, you're absolutely right. Uh, the, the the writing of this was very Ignatian prayer in execution of having a scene and praying on a scene and imagining Ignatius where he is. You know, if he's talking to Francis Xavier, and you know what would he say? And there's a lot of of that, but also some of it, a lot of it is practical, right? Because you need you have your your story points and you need to get from point a to point b and you also have character motivations of why is he doing this or why will he not do this and and so using that as scaffolding it all it kind of just frames itself um and it it, it runs that way uh writing historical graphic novels is really interesting because for me writing any other work if you're writing fiction uh whether it's a graphic novel or a novel prose or, or whatever you're building you mm -hmm. are you are creating something uh writing histor uh historical nonfiction is sculpting mm -hmm. uh you're taking away you have a giant block of marble you have all the story points are there that, that you there's nothing for you to make up there's nothing for you to create you need to take the things that happened and get rid of the things that aren't necessary to mold the story that is important that you want your reader to take away, the things that you want them to see. So um, while the words that they're saying to each other are completely made up, uh, what they're doing, the plot, the motivations, all of that stuff is existing there in the marble, and I just need to strip it away and make it apparent to the reader. Yeah, I love that. That's a that's a great way of thinking of differentiating. Um, because yeah, in some ways, like that's a whole different skill set, right? Kind of chiseling away at history to make it is it apparent for the reader, accessible, interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and uh, and and yeah, there's certainly plenty of uh, Ignatian lore out there to uh, to dig through. Um, I'm wondering, we we talked a little bit about kind of like Ignatian prayer as as part of the process. Was there anything um 
that that the creative process in general kind of revealed uh, kind of about spirituality or how how do you see creativity and spirituality um, uh, kind of intermingling or or not? Well, I so. I, for me, I think it's different because this was a extreme spiritual experience for mm. me. Um, about halfway through writing the book, actually, I joined my local Jesuit parish's RCIA and I got confirmed and had my first communion um, through oh, this wow. project. And so for me, it was um, it revealed a lot to me personally going through this. Um I think that's just like a really difficult question uh, to answer because I think that it was a very spiritual experience. I think that going through this, I had lots of personal conversations with Ignatius and reaching mm. out and being like, you know, I I need inspiration. I need direction. I need this. I mean, I got writer's block. I got stuck on things. I like it's it, it was a struggle at times, um, but it's. Through that, I think that I saw myself in Ignatius's story. And so in this, this was as much an exploration of myself as it was of, of, of Ignatius. And so I think that the end product of this book is incredibly spiritual in nature, but also but in a personal way. And But I really hope that reading it is spiritual for the people on the other side. Um, what I think is fascinating by the end of the project is that I think that what revealed to me is that Ignatius wasn't converted by the cannonball, right? The cannonball laid him out. Mm -hmm. He was, his, his, his inspiration came from reading the stories of other saints. He was like, that's all he had to read. He had the life of Christ and the lives of the saints. So, it's it's really those stories of others of 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 Catholic heroes, if you will, as as inspiration. And so this comes full circle where this is the life of a saint, and hopefully, getting putting people in a position to read it will give them that same spiritual experience that I had in reading Ignatius's story or or, or writing it out. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's super profound. And I think just like your description of your experience going, you know, going through the life of Ignatius is um, just exactly kind of again what Ignatian spirituality is about, right? Helping us see ourselves as God sees us, helping us kind of go deeper into who we're called to be. Um, so I, I, that's cool. And I, and I think it comes through in the book. I, I um you know, I, I just want to I want to pick on one little thing on the in the back cover of the book. There's written it says the yeah. art the art in the book is described as a modern day callback to the traditional Catholic illustrative storytelling in illuminated manuscripts and stained glass. Um, and I was like, oh, that sounds super cool, and the art is really beautiful. And so I was wondering if you could unpack that. Why? What, what that? What is that? What were you trying to get across? Um, why is it important? So I think it's twofold. That the purpose of that that line is twofold. For one, it goes back to the, my special education training. Right, you have uh, illustrative art as a way of storytelling in the early church because mm -hmm. literacy rates like aren't aren't that aren't aren't that high at the time, and so that's a way to inspire through storytelling. And especially when you're talking about Jesuits, Jesuits are kind of renowned for having one foot in the past and one foot moving moving forward right right and when you're talking about education comics and graphic novels in the education realm is a very progressive kind of 
idea. It's getting a more more traction now. When we started doing this about ten years ago, it was still comic books were still kind of a, a dirty word as far as you know reading specialists in classrooms. Uh, but it's still not as nearly as bad as you know thirty years ago, where like it was like that's vile. It's not real reading. But re- reading is reading is reading is reading. If you can get a kid to pick up something to read, I, I think that's great. When you're talking about Jesuit schools, right? Like you don't think of these high performing, high aptitude students as really, you know, I remember my summer reading lists, especially freshman year, and it's it's classical education through and through. Um, but there's something to allowing these different intelligences to to help aid in the educational experience in students. And so I was trying to root the, like the, the roots of this book are, are progressive in, in the, you know, philosophy edu- education kind of idea, but it's also incredibly traditional. Mm-hmm. Um, and that this is how lots of people learn these stories. But as we've gone to these higher reading like level books, I think that we've lost a sense of interpretive, illustrative storytelling. And so I tried to bring some of that back. Um, It's really on the nose, really simple stuff, but like periodically throughout the book, whenever like somebody is bringing forward a temptation, they're like eating an apple. And so like, you just like recognize that kind of storytelling device or the saints, like you can tell what saint is what based on, you know, how they're killed and just like, that that ability to take a picture and decipher like a still picture and decipher what is happening um you don't get that as much and so i think it's a more complete work by being able to incorporate both sides of of that spectrum yeah yeah and i i like i think again kind of speaking to like the you know jesuit charism um you know you're 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 looking at the past you're you're pointing to the to the future you're um you know you're speaking to you know literacy you're speaking to imagery um it feels very kind of care of the whole person you know very very you know whole person focused which again is at the at the heart of, of jesuit education um and formation so i, I think it's uh, again it's the, the experience of the book more so than even just kind of you know reading it the experience of it i think speaks to um the larger kind of mission that 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 it's all about um so what uh so so talk about kind of how folks can can support this project or if they want to get a copy for themselves um what's the uh, what's the next step uh, so, uh, really, uh, uh, we've printed enough and we've sent them off to uh, Jesuit schools to peruse and look at them. Uh, we're really hoping that they pick them up as a part of a, their curriculum. I know that uh, they have theology departments looking at them. I think my intent uh, was really to give it to a freshman uh, as their summer reading list. So before they even step foot on campus, they have an idea of what the whole mission is. But I'm really hoping that schools... Um, look at them for any part of their curriculum to help, you know, make those fields more ready for planting uh, uh, when they're doing what they're doing. Um, so uh, getting a hold of the book isn't the easiest thing to do right now. But I mean, if, if you're a Jesuit school or in the Jesuit school system, you know, say, let's take a look at this. I, I think it'd be really beneficial to to teachers and students and, you know, the clergy alike. Um Cool. Yeah. Maybe we'll drop your uh, some some contact information for you in the uh, in the notes for this episode, so folks can reach out if they uh, if they want to. If that sounds good sure. to you. Um, and what's next? What's the next project, or what what's kind of been bouncing around in the back of your mind that you'd like to to tackle one day? 
So I don't know if it's great to talk about ideas before they're fully baked uh, on here, but the, the, the one thing that I really want to do next is a little bit of a departure. I want to do the story of uh, Benedict Arnold, but through as a Greek tragedy. Oh, so cool. I want to do a Greek tragedy of, of, of Benedict Arnold, um, which I've now, after doing this book, is becoming a very um, Ignatius comparison kind of story, which is kind of fascinating. Cool. Cool. All right, Ty. Well, hey, man. Thank you uh, so much for being on the uh, the podcast today, and uh, we look forward to reading some more some more comics. Thanks, Eric. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States, and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. This episode was edited by me, Eric Clayton. Our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Mike Lasky, Marcus Bleach. Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, Kristen Smith, and me, Eric Clayton. Connect with the Jesuits at Jesuits.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Get our weekly email reflection series, Now Discern This, by visiting Jesuits.org weekly. If you or someone you know would like to learn more about becoming a Jesuit or Jesuit life in general, connect with your local vocation promoter at BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. Subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And finally, as St. Ignatius may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. <laughs>